Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's the NIL hour, almost an hour, with me, Taryn Sharma, back with Mike Lawson, as always, and Holly Summers. How's it going? Pretty good, Taryn. How are you? Doing all right. Holly is going to the draft tomorrow, which is very exciting. Uh, So if you're listening to this tomorrow, Holly's on her way to the draft. We're also joined today by third-year law student and contributor to Conduct Detrimental, Logan Hughes. How's it going? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. First time on this podcast, but any podcast? You know, first time on any podcast. Yeah, this is a big moment for me. It's it's a big moment for us, honestly. So in, in 20 years, when everyone's got you on TV, you'll remember where you got your start on the little old NIL hour, which is, as always, brought to you by Themis. Yeah, we are sponsored by Themis. Yes, we are deep into the bar prep at this point. We hope that anybody who is preparing for the bar using Themis, is it's going well. And for those rising 3Ls who are looking for a bar review, bar prep, Logan, are you your rising 3L? Yes, sir. Are you going to use Themis? Put you on a spot 100%. Here? I'm actually a, I'm a sponsor, so I work Ooh. for them. There we go. Look at we that. We didn't even plan that, Themis. We're just that good. So if you head over to Themis Bar Review and use the code CDThemis500 until the end of this month, that'll still get you $500 off on their bar review. So make sure you head over and use the code CDThemis500. Also, here is a brief message from our platform, Spotify. Awesome. Well, we've got a couple of topics this week. The reason that we wanted to have you on, Logan, is that you wrote an excellent article on Third Circuit case, Johnson v. NCAA, something that we've discussed pretty exhaustively on this program. But uh, you had a a different sort of take. You thought that the uh, the student athletes are not going to prevail. And so we wanted to definitely hear about that. We're also going to hear about the recently filed lawsuit by Brander against EA Sports. Also how college football Players Association uh, kind of mixes into that. And then we'll finish up with a with a what to watch for. So let's start here. Logan, why don't you give us a little bit of background uh, for those that aren't familiar, just 30 seconds on what Johnson v. NCAA is, and, uh, and then we can get into a couple of the arguments. Trey Johnson, former Villanova football player and some other Division I athletes, filing a suit against the NCAA, claiming that they are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And if a court were to agree with them in that claim, they would receive minimum wage and overtime from the NCAA. And so that's what they're shooting for. District court or NCAA tried to dismiss the case based off prior precedent there at district court. The district court declined that dismissal and the NCAA filed an immediate interlocutory appeal to the third circuit. And that's where we're at. I'm putting you on the spot here. I told you I was going to cold call you. What is an interlocutory appeal? You betcha. Um, It's where we're going to stop the case at the district court level and we're going to appeal it just on a single issue. So rather than have the case decided and then say, man, I lost and I would like to appeal it, The NCAA has yet to actually lose the case. They just want to say that student athletes should not be deemed employees as a matter of law. So we're going to stop it right there and we're going to appeal solely on that issue. I'm going to make sure to put that in my next notice of appeal is, quote, man, I lost. We're going to appeal. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you don't want to say. No, but that's right. That's right. Yeah, right. I think uh, Professor Lawson, he gets an A, right? Why for now, we, we have more. We have more for you, Logan. Logan, what are the arguments that, that each side is making? You kind of touched on the NCAA argument there. 
the NCAA really wants to, you know, rely on precedent. You guys have talked about the Berger and the Dawson cases, where both the Seventh and the Ninth Circuit came out and said that student athletes are not employees as a matter of law, so they don't even have any standing to bring that claim. And then the student athletes are coming back and saying, you know, things have really changed since those cases. And the amount of control that the NCAA is displaying over these student athletes is really what we are arguing makes us employees, speaking as a student athlete there. And so they've got a little bit more oomph behind them this time due to, you know, the Alston case and some language from Justice Kavanaugh. But yeah, I can get more into what I what kind of why I think the NCAA will prevail, but I'll let you guys talk on that first. I want to jump in here quick as it relates to the precedent. So we, we, I do have a lot of questions on Berger and Dawson and I have a different, I'll just say it right now. I have a different opinion than your analysis, but I liked your analysis. Um, So as it relates to, I'll go with, I'll go with Berger first and then we'll go to Dawson. Berger's the older case. So Berger is a seventh circuit case from 2016. Dawson is a ninth circuit case from 2019. If you follow us and you listen to us, Alston is also a ninth circuit case too. So Alston came up through uh, the ninth circuit, most notably 2021 when it was in, in the Supreme Court, what you just referenced with some of the, the new, I think a lot of issues that come up with college, it's determinative of the bench. And right now people are saying that the Supreme Court is a ripe bench for this issue. And I agree. And that's kind of where I'm going to lead off to how I think this is going to go. But as it relates to, I would say Berger is a little bit different than this case, because the case that we have here with Johnson is a D1 football player, which is more notably connected to the Dawson case, which was D1. That was a USC football player. But also as it relates to kind of tying in with the NLRB and their recent complaint against USC as well. So Dawson is actually, I'll get to Dawson in a second, but Dawson is very similar. If you read the Dawson case, a lot of the news that you've probably read about the the NLRB case against USC, very similar arguments to Dawson, which is pretty interesting. But Berger is probably the the stronger case that I think the Third Circuit's going to go with. The Third Circuit is obviously close to the Second Circuit, whether that means anything, right? Because everyone's arguing, and we'll talk about the Second Circuit's uh, seven-factor, multi-factor test here. But the ultimate thing is, what does, as it relates to Berger, what does the students have to prove under the Fair Labor Standards Act that they are employees? What is the test that the circuits are using, and what do you think the Third Circuit's going to use? That's a great question, and I think... Honestly, it could be a lot of people's, anyone's guess to which test there's going to be. There's about four of them, to my knowledge, that are kind of roaming out there. And all of them are basically, we're trying to ask, we're looking at factors so that the court's going to ask these questions on what are we going to ask to show whether or not there's such an amount of control that you are an employee under an employer. We're just trying to find that relationship. And in the district court, they use the enterprise test and for the most part, most of them are kind of asking, you know, whether or not the NCAA or the employer has the ability to hire, fire the worker, whether like how much control over they have over their work schedule and their compensation and benefits that they receive and how much they're involved in their day-to-day supervision and those kind of things. And so I think those are both argued closely from the NCAA and the student-athlete. I think that those can be close arguments, even though I think the student-athletes will prevail on that aspect. Not to cut you off, you're saying that you think the student-athletes will prevail on the higher fire? I think that no. I agree. I, so, I would, I would I favor agree. the NCAA saying that they do not, because 
the university themselves is the one that has the ability to pull and give a scholarship to that certain individual. The NCAA has no say in we're going to take player X's scholarship just because, like, I mean, unless there's some sort of other reasoning. Right. And that's what that's what they talked about in Dawson. The the higher fire was specifically discussed in the Dawson case, the Ninth Circuit case. And they went through because Dawson was alleging the complete control. The issue that Dawson did that I think is different than the NLRB case is Dawson failed to allege that USC was an employer. So that was an, that's a distinction here where the NLRB has now complained that the that USC is the employer and then through joint employer status, the PAC-12 and the NCAA are also joint employers. Therefore, they have control because of the regulatory. Because both of these cases talked about the fact that the, the NCAA and the conferences are just regulatory bodies and that all of the different things that the student athletes are discussing, specifically like what Dawson alleged, like living arrangement, athletic eligibility, permissible compensation, allowable behavior, drinking, you know, drinking and drugs, gambling, all this stuff. All these connections are only related to the fact that they are a regulatory body and not one of an employer employee status. So that was Dawson. And I think that's a strong argument for the NCAA. I do. But as it relates now, I think the tide is definitely turning when it relates to Berger. And Berger actually has a concurrence. This is, I think this is crazy. Berger has a concurrence, 2016 case. Before NIL really was a thing, before Alston was even on the spectrum, you know, before we even saw anything coming down the line, we've had Border Regents, we had O'Bannon, right? Those are the those are the main ones that Berger was the kind of looking to in the Seventh Circuit. This was a UPenn women's track athlete case a non-revenue and UPenn is an Ivy League school. So non-scholarship athletes, right? So there was a huge concurrence in here from the seventh circuit that said that the judge was agreeing with the case. However, he was differentiating the fact that because the main thing here, the main test, and this is what I wanted to talk about too, is economic reality. So the, the, the whole, you know, the circuits aren't really definitive on what factor test they're doing. And the, I think it was the seventh circuit case that said, yes, the second circuit does this and the ninth circuit might do this. And, you know, there are circuits that do these multi-factor tests, but they actually kept it so broad that they said that we're not going to hold ourselves to a multi-factor test because it is a case by case basis. And this is why I think the student athletes have a stronger argument now than they did seven years ago in the Berger case, because they didn't have, again, seventh circuit, not third circuit, but they didn't establish a multi-factor test because they wanted to have the ability to dive into different factors as they come up. Now, this concurrence said that because UPenn, these, these UPenn track women, they were non-scholarship athletes, and it's a non-revenue sport. He differentiated, specifically differentiated, saying that other scholarship athletes and revenue-earning sports, such as Division I basketball and FBS football, would have a different economic reality because they have an expectation of some sort of payment because they are scholarship athletes, and them as the, the sports in totality earn billions of dollars. So there is a revenue expectation there. Now, Dawson later, which is a later case, it's 2019 case, kind of attacked that as well, basically saying that really you can't use revenue as a direct evidence of economic reality. It all boils down to this case-by-case -case basis. 
of what is economic reality and counting for circumstances in totality rather than just isolated factors. I'm getting to a question here. I'm I'm, I'm long-winded here. I've got a lot because I've, I, 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 I find Berger and Dawson to be very influential here. Obviously, they, they're the only two cases that kind of directly attacking the Fair Labor Standards Act and employee status. I think I've said this before, too. I thought Johnson was too soon because I think the NLRB has a stronger argument to get them as an employee status. The Berger case talked about the Department of Labor saying that even the Department of Labor haven't, hasn't really determined students as non-employees. Now, here's where I think, like I said, leading into my question, where I think student athletes have a stronger argument. They said that this they, they left it open because it's multi-factor. They were citing Board of Regents and O'Bannon as it related to the tradition of amateurism and the economic reality as it relates to university student athletes in the tradition of amateurism. We just saw amateurism get completely destroyed in the Alston case because they have a circular argument of what is an amateur, an athlete who's not paid, an athlete who's not paid is an amateur athlete. So they destroyed that. So how can you have any sort of economic reality of an, a definition that they're basing their opinion on to something that is completely different now in 2023? And that's where I think the, that they have a better, a stronger argument because Austin has changed the way that the court, specifically the Supreme Court, looks at amateurism and student athletes as a whole. So that's my question. Yeah. Do you think that, that did the Austin changes the way that you can look at this economic reality factor of student athletes? I 100% agree with you. And I think that's why this this case is different than Berger and Dawson. No doubt about it. I think the it's going to take a way deeper analysis. I think the NCAA's argument is because I think they understand, too, that Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court has demolished amateurism. I mean, they're not willing to let it go and they still want to bring it back. But I think they're going to try to have to shift their argument a little bit to we're not necessarily trying to rely on a 1984 case saying that this is the way college sports have to be run because this is college sports kind of deal. But I think they might shift that argument a little bit to say, if you deviate from this model too much, you will destroy college athletics or a, a sense of that. And we will see semi-professional rather than the college athletic atmosphere that we know. And so I think rather than a strong hat on amateurism, they're going to shift that argument. I still think they're going to bring the department of labor into it and say executive agencies who are enforcing the FLSA define this as this. So we should give them some credit. They don't see student athletes as employees. And then mainly, I think they just that long-term impact is at one point during oral arguments with the third circuit, I forget which judge it was, and he got cut off there pretty quick. But at one point he said, would the redeeming student athletes employees under the FLSA even cure this problem? And they kind of move on and they kind of don't even really address that question that much. But I think that's really what I hang my article on is I do not think them becoming employees under the Fair Labor Standard Act addresses the problem within college athletics. And I think that's the, it's not going to come into the economic reality, but I think it does come into the totality of the circumstances of the decision. So Logan, what makes you think that that's the question that they're going to come back to and, and rely upon if they kind of brushed over it during the arguments? The reason I think they brushed over it is I think another question was asked directly on top of it. And so I think that was, I, I do think it is very relevant to the argument. The concept of there's so many other paths and revenues, the court can use the multi-factor test. And I think since 
I do. I think the NCAA and student athletes can argue it, you know, both ways very closely. And I, I think uh, Mike kind of agreed with that. And so since that's going to be so close, the court's going to look at, you know, some other factors to bring into this totality of the circumstances. And so I think that's kind of where you can look at what is this going to have, like, what's the effect of this going to be? And so I think since you can point at the fact that there's so many other problems in the college athletic space right now, and personally, I don't think really any of them are cured by student athletes getting a minimum wage and overtime rights. I think it has to do more with unionization and then being able to, you know, protect their name, image and likeness rights and all those matters. And so I don't think that, the, you know, being employees under the FLSA specifically fixes those problems. The other thing we talked about, too, is workers' comp. And there's a lot of cases, both Berger and Dawson cite workers' comp cases where athletes were injured. The main one is the, I can't remember, it was the athlete, it was a football team, I think it was out of California. They There was a plane crash when they were coming home or going to coming home from a game, and they were filing for workers' compensation damages for athletes who were engaging in, in the the, uh, the athletic program, but they found that they weren't employees, so they couldn't get workers' compensation. So we've talked about workers' compensation on this before, and that's another reason why, you know, that's another factor that would come into, obviously, an employee, a student becoming an employee. But I think you're right. I think there's so many issues that them being determined employees wouldn't fix all of it. It would help. I think it would fix a little bit. I think what they need to do, and I think, I hope, I hope the Third Circuit realizes what they need to do is what the Ninth Circuit talked about when Alston was being determined is they need to, they need to have stronger definitions. The FLSA doesn't have strong enough definitions on what an employee and what the definition of to employ means. So Berger talked about it, but it just talked about how broad it was and that they, they couldn't make up their minds of what an employee or an employer does. So I'm going to hit you with some USC here. So 29 USC 203 of the FLSA, E1 defines employees, but it's a circular kind of status where it's like any individual employed by an employer. That's what an employee, that's the definition under the Fair Labor Standard Act. That's terrible. And then section G of, of 203, subsection G of 203 defines employ as to suffer or permit to work. And then section subsection D defines employer as any person acting directly or indirectly in the interest of an employer in relation to an employee. So the, the, the definitions all around this are horrible. Granted, they also don't define work. They don't define what work means under the FLSA. So there's a lot of definitions that they need to come up with that Congress clearly didn't have any sort of determination or hindsight because they need to figure out. And that's where they were using the Department of Labor because they were using the field operations handbook, which isn't really binding on a court decision, but the field operations handbook under the Department of Labor was kind of how they were determining whether or not students were employees. And they talked about students who participate in extracurriculars are generally, again, generally not considered employees under the FLSA, and that students are permitted to participate in inter, inter, interscholastic athletics, among other things, any sort of extracurricular, wouldn't result in an employer-employee relationship. Again, these are really definitive statements here of a different culture of this tradition of amateurism. So, Logan, you say that the determination of them becoming employees wouldn't really help, but would this appeal under the Third Circuit, them having some sort of definitive definition on what an employee, employer, all this – would that at least guide the future of the litigation as it relates to employee status of student athletes? It would, 
And first off, I do want to say that deeming them employees, I do think that would help. I think that would take, it would be like a step in the right direction. Athletes would get more. Um, I just don't think it's quite like the right path. But if the court third circuit were to give a better definition to what the FLSA means, I do think it, it would be more clear. Although I'm not quite sure that they're going to think that's really their role in this position. I think they might say that's, you know, overstretching and they're creating kind of like doing what the NCAA or what everybody's asking the federal government to step in and do. And that's, you know, define what we should label student athletes as these days. And I think that'd be too much for them. And so I think, and like you said, the terrible definitions that the FLSA presents kind of gives the NCAA, I think, a little bit of a better argument to say that you don't want to make this catastrophic change. We've been doing things for 100 years, you know, and so you don't want to make a super huge change when it's not quite your place and the case law and the statute that we're arguing underneath doesn't necessarily allow you to make that change. I agree. And the courts definitely have shown, I mean, perfect example. We just talked about it in the last episode, the the federal baseball antitrust exemption. The court clearly doesn't like to change things that have been going on for hundreds of years. However, there's been a little, there's been nuances where the court does like to change. And I think NCAA, as it relates to this issue, is definitely going to happen. I mean, obviously, I have a ton here, and I appreciate it, Logan. I, I did enjoy your article, and as you can tell, I'm very in the weeds on some of these cases. But Holly, what do you got? I have really appreciated the conversation so far, Logan. I think your article is extremely interesting, and I do think it's super funny how the definition that you wrote at the FLSA has uh, is any individual employed by an employer. Kind of reminds me of the NCAA's amateur definition being well, they're a student and they're not professional, so they must be amateur and they don't expect pay, so they can't be an employee. But like everything is super circular and we're definitely trying to get out of that. Um, Logan, one of the questions that I had for you about your article is you mentioned um, at your very last paragraph was that maybe there's a chance that the NLRB deems athletes as employees, which will give them the right to unionize, which is which is like, extremely interesting in my mind to see student athletes be able to unionize because we've kind of already seen a little bit of that or maybe hinting at that and you go on to say this will kind of give them the right to have revenue sharing maybe have health and safety policies proper enforcement in al but then you also mentioned that that makes more sense to you than paying every athlete minimum wage and overtime what do you think is a good compromise or how do you think the NCAA and universities can maybe do both. They can give uni- they can give students the right to unionize, or maybe the court can give students the right to unionize, but not have to pay overtime in minimum wage. I think it's the NLRB decision. The reason I think I can separate them from the Third Circuit is the Third Circuit technically doesn't have to, you know, say that the NLRB decision is binding on them by any means. But the reason I give them that path, the NLRA. More so is it does allow like things so like revenue sharing, I think, is the biggest answer to your question to where we can give them the ability to unionize and student athletes can advocate for their rights and tell the NCAA what exactly it is that they want kind of deal. And the NCAA can listen and, you know, you can do things accordingly. And then a part of that unionization and working together with the NCAA is a piece of revenue sharing saying we, you know, we think we should be compensated. But I think when you deem them or employees under the FLSA, then so many other implications come with that as the like the status label of employee. 
So revenue sharing is one concept and it doesn't bring in all that extra stuff that I think can actually damage the student athlete and is the things that they don't want. So I think that's why this unionization and towards a different path besides the FLSA is a better answer. Yeah, well, I think we'll put a pin in it there. Really good discussion, Logan. Very impressive article. Very well written. I think that it should be a like a lesson to anybody that's interested in writing. We all started out writing. Holly is doing the newsletter now, and and you know now we have this platform. We're able to showcase people who are writing about interesting things, and and the discussion is really good. So anyone who's interested in writing should write because then we can have you on here. Holly, do you have anything else on this? Yeah, I was going to say that rising 2Ls and incoming 1Ls, pay attention to this because this is a circuit split if, like we were talking about the third circuit, kind of goes saying that student athletes are employees and that's something you can write about on Law Review for your case comment. And that's a really easy, really passionate thing you can knock out. Right. And, you know, how lucky are the current law students? So you go 40 years without a single court case talking about uh, sports law. And, and all of a sudden now you might have two in, in the span of a year, maybe even three, maybe more. So we'll leave this discussion here. Logan, any final thoughts on that? No. Nope. Yeah. Couldn't agree with more with you guys and Holly on to write about this and stay relevant in where it goes. Cause I think it is a huge deal and you could probably make a profession out of it. Yeah. And as, as this keeps moving, we'll hope to have you back on to, to talk about the next moves. All right. So we'll wrap uh, on the Johnson versus NCAA. Definitely, you know, keep your eye out here. I'm sure if there's any updates to this, Logan's going to be following this. So I'm sure we'll have more articles coming our way. Definitely interesting to see what the Third Circuit does as it relates to the interlocutory appeal regarding this employee definition, employee status under the FLSA. Now we'll switch. We'll switch gears a little bit. A new lawsuit. We've talked about this before as it relates to, we I just mentioned O'Bannon earlier, as it relates to EA sports uh, and compensation for student athletes as the new NCAA EA games come out. We have uh, Brander versus EA Sports as it relates to the student athlete compensation. So Holly, I'm going to kick it right to you. I know you're all over this. Oh yeah. So basically, as y'all know, EA has kind of been teasing us with a college football, college sports, whatever, game that they want to release and they're hoping to get some of the student athletes to sign over some of their rights so they can be put into the game now as we know as you talked about o'bannon vncaa was basically when they found it illegal for ea to not compensate the athletes for their nil and ea was basically like that's fine we're just going to stop making games and i think in like 2021, 2022, after the Austin case, EA kind of started thinking about creating another video game, um, another NCAA video game. And they started working with this company called Brander Group. And Brander Group is a group licensing NIL company that specifically partners with athletes from Brander Group schools to give them group licensing deals for entire teams or the entire athletic department. And these are so, some big schools, right, Holly? Like some major power five players. Yeah, for Ohio sure. State, Texas, Michigan, big time programs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so right now they had, Brander had 54 D1 schools 
that they were trying to basically convince to make deals with EAs for their NIL rights so that these athletes could be put into the game. They kind of started talking about this, like I said, working with EA more specifically in around like 2022, I believe. And they were trying to get that ball rolling, trying to create these deals between the student athletes and EA. And all of a sudden, I think like a month ago, EA started working or trying to go around working with Brandor to work with a completely different company called One Team Partners that would help them facilitate these group licensing deals without Brander at all. Specifically, they're giving student athletes the chance to opt in to have their NIL appear in the game, right? Right. And my personal opinion is, is that Brander has consistently said that they don't believe EA's offer to students to compensate them $500 with no royalties for their NIL rights to be put into the game was argued to be below fair market value. And I think that EA kind of got tired of them mentioning that or saying that because schools are receiving like 10% of what the entire game eventually will bring in. And the students are only receiving the $500 one-time payment. So I'm wondering if EA got tired of Brander kind of maybe just advocating for their students and saying, pay them more, pay them their market value and started to work with this other company, one team partners. How does Brander make money? Do you, do we have any sense of that? Like what does Brander do? How do they make money? If you're listening to this and, and you don't follow Matt Brown, uh, the, this, uh, the newsletter extra points, I, like, what are you even doing? It's <laughs> right up your alley. So just, I would go and follow that, but he has a great write-up today because all of this is based on uh, on our friend Amanda Christovich's article this past week. And so he gives us the gist of how the Brander agreements work. So he says, the schools agree to give Brander contract, inform- contract information on their athletes, share information about the program with the athletes, that's about Brander to the athletes, and license university marks to Brander. Then Brander individually signs up the athletes for a group licensing system, negotiates on their behalf with brands, and facilitates the production and sale of co-branded items like jerseys, trading cards, etc. Brander and the school are in communication to make sure that those group license deals don't violate any other university agreements, read compliance, and Brander then collects a fee from the sale of the products and the rest of the money is distributed to the athletes. So if I tell you that the athletes are going to end up getting more money, do you think that that fee that Brander is going to collect is going to be higher or lower? Well, that's just it. The Brander, Brander has, a, has a, a self-interest in athletes making more because if they're getting percentages on what the athletes are as the totality of the group for doing the deal, then they're going to want them to get paid more. Yeah. And I think that this is where Brown comes down to that it's it's pretty clear that like, Brander's kind of putting their their stake in the ground. They're trying to protect what their contractual rights are, and they should. Like they, it would be very unwise for any company. You know, we all work with companies all the time. You would never tell them to not defend what they bargained for, because if EA can just say like, "Oh, we're contracting directly with the student athletes," they can opt in or opt out. It doesn't matter. Like they're cutting Brander out of the deal. Brander's not going to make. The money that they would if they were negotiating it directly. Logan, did you 
uh, get a chance to to read this story. You have any thoughts on it? Yeah, just a little bit off where you're. And I looked at the elements of you know tortious interference, which is the claim yeah. they're bringing. And yeah, if brand if um, EA Sports was aware of the deal that Brand R had with the athletes, and they specifically try to you know sidestep them, that is basically exactly what tortious interference is. So I think the claims looks kind of good. And so I think that, and Holly, maybe you have a, a take on this. I think that there's a difference between what like Jason Stahl, who's, you know, he's a friend of the program, he's been on before College Football Players Association, saying that something is not good for college football players, like they should be getting more, and a business that directly benefits from the student athletes taking in more money if they're part of the negotiations. I, I mean, don't you think that those have like different motivations that that maybe we should look at them a little bit differently? I think so. I mean, I'm always on the side of the student athletes. And anytime somebody says that they're advocating for student athletes, I feel like I'm a really big sucker for that statement. And every time I see it, I automatically think, yes, I don't care if they're getting more money for advocating as long as the student athletes get paid their fair market value or get paid what they're worth. I feel like I'm okay with it. So maybe I'm being a little biased just because Brander Group said, hey, this is not what student athletes should be getting paid. They should sure. be paid way more than $500. But I mean, you're right. They are getting more money. Probably that's totally, say, yeah. It's totally fine. And, and it can be more than one thing. It's not necessarily like, oh, because they would profit from it, that that's the only reason that they're doing it. But here, it looks to me to be pretty transparent. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Well, two things. I mean, first off, well, also you mentioned the College Football Players Association, which also called that they were going to boycott the game when there was the, with the issue of non, you know, the not opt in, not yeah. opt in. Right. You got to look at the O'Bannon case, right? The O'Bannon case valued the athletes way higher than five hundred dollars. I mean, I had a friend who made, I think, like around eight hundred bucks and he was at a lower D1 school. So, you know, the value is is way higher here than $500. And I think with Brandar's involvement here, by them kind of shining the light on the below, far below market value and kind of creating the spin that EA Sports wasn't going to compensate the athletes correctly, it's kind of spun everything into what we're looking at now. I mean, if the College Football Players Association didn't have that big boycott too, that put a lot more eyes on this. Everybody was more excited that EA was actually going to make this game because since they started, yeah. it was very, very popular, right? And when they started the process of making this game, they said they were actually not going to use any sort of name, image, and likeness of these athletes or just going to be kind of generic players. That's what they used to do before, except it wasn't generic players. It was like very clear that like you were playing with like Carmelo Anthony on the Syracuse team, you know, like they, they were, it was very, very similar to, to the athletes. Right. So that was the issue uh, that EA sports had before where they were just clearly using their name, image and likeness. So I don't know. Does, does EA also pull the plug on this and just say, you know what, screw it. We're going to go back to just doing generic bots because this is too much of an issue and we can't figure out a deal. Brandar is going to have their breach of co- or the torches interference here as it relates. But if EA couldn't figure out a deal with Brander to these athletes, because they clearly said that that was below market value, then what's the, what's the actual damages that Brandar faces if EA makes a game that doesn't actually use any sort of rights at all? 
yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what you could argue there beyond that they could have made more if they weren't circumvented by by EA, right? Right, right, right. Your claim for damages would be significantly less if EA just completely shifts, which they were probably right to do if they Brander was just kind of the middleman where they were negotiating these deals. But if the deals were never going to be there in the first place, which is probably what EA is going to say, well, this would have been too complicated. They were asking for too much money. We don't know how much this game is going to produce yet. We haven't made the game in over 10 years. You know, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking from the EA side and, and EA has a lot of money. I mean, they, they've got a lot of money, but, but they're definitely not one of the top game makers in, in since they were back in the early 2000s, early 2010s, then EA might just say, screw it. We didn't think this was going to be as profitable than what it's now come to be. And we're just going to make the game generic. And you're going to play, we're going to, we're going to cut deals with the schools and we'll have revenue and rights to the actual, you know, licensing for the, for the schools. And, and that's it. Well, yeah, Logan, let me get your take on this. When, when Jason Stahl said that the players should not opt in, I said that, you know, I, I like Jason. I think he's a good advocate for the players, but I think that he is severely overestimating the value of having the players NIL in there, because really what, most people play it for, or at least from my experience of what people play it for, is to be in like year 15 with Eastern Michigan and you somehow have them in the Fiesta Bowl and you're playing like, you know, at 3 a.m. at Christmas break. Like that, that is what I enjoyed. I don't know. What what do you think? Taryn, that is spot on. I think we were doing the same thing when we were 15, <laughs> 16 years old. Now, I'm right there with you. I don't think EA would be willing to take the hit financially on the creating generic bots. So I think the question more so becomes, what's EA going to do to either, I don't know, take the lawsuit on the tortious interference and, you know, try to work out a deal with Brandar or, you know, work with, I think they're just going to, you know, maybe you go to the division one schools, the people that are actually worth more money that you're really putting in the game and you create some sort of more bargaining with them and you, you know, compensate them more. And then, the other athletes that, you know, maybe aren't going to be making as much money or, you know, they wouldn't be worth it, then they're going to be thrilled with their $500. So I think it's just going to, it would take more interaction between the two parties. My favorite connection too, because it's EA Sports, was the NCAA games and Madden. You could connect the two of those. So you could create a player, go through your four years of NCAA and then transfer that guy over to Madden and get drafted into a team and play Madden. Although, which is funny enough, you'd think Madden would be a better game. I thought NCAA was just a better game overall. Oh, like it, it ran so much better than Madden did. 100%. Complete sidebar, but that was yeah, I just wanted to take that <laughs> I'm going to have to jump in on something Logan said about going to maybe other schools that aren't Brandar related schools, I guess. Uh, I guess one of those might be Oklahoma. And Mike, you and I talked about General Booty saying you better pay us more than $100, more than $500 as students need to stick together and tell EA, no, we're not going to accept something less. So they might have a hard time going to other schools, try to pay them less, but we're just going to have to see. I think I think EA might kind of do what they did before and just say, all right, you know what? We don't really care. 
to pay student athletes for their their rights. So we're just gonna make a game that is completely customizable. You can do whatever you want with facial shape, body shape, body type, hair, whatever, and then let their fans create entire teams and then potentially export the team that they created from whatever school and sell that on like, I don't know, sell that somewhere, Reddit, Etsy or something that you can yeah. download these skins of Every your game. entire team. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that used to happen. I don't, I don't know if you knew that or like, was that an original idea? Because it used to be like you put your uh your memory card in the mail and mailed it to some guy in North Dakota and sent him five dollars on PayPal <laughs> and then you get it back in a week and it's got all of the rosters on it. Oh yeah. That yeah. used to be a, a very real I believe it. And now you can straight up just download the rosters online. You exactly. can do that. That was like you, one of the best yeah. Things. Yeah. I think that something like that, EA would be like, you know what, we will save money. We don't really like somebody else will do the work for us of creating these character likenesses and then it will get more popular our game might be more popular or will still be popular if somebody buys it and then just goes and gets these downloadable skins somewhere else like we don't have to do the work what are they really paying for maybe the name on the back of the jersey or whatever and you know like I said I'm very much student athlete advocate so I would like to see them pay the student athletes, but I, I don't really believe EA would go out of their way to pay them more. Yeah. Holly, it's a great idea. Do you guys see uh, any future O'Bannon number twos? As in, if you allow somebody to do that, you think student athletes might say, even though EA Sports doesn't specifically do that, they give them the capability of doing that. So you're still using my name, image, and likeness. So I still want money. Yeah, I'm sure somebody would try, but I don't think they're going to get very far because EA would just say, hey, we just sell the game. We just wanted to give you customized, like people love to customize their characters. Maybe they're trying to look at, make it look like them or whatever. We wow. can't be held responsible for what our, like what our fans or what our purchasers do, our customers do. I'm sure maybe they'll have some warranty or something too that pops up on the screen before you play the game, like, Whatever you do, we're not responsible <laughs> for it. Or any likeness is purely coincidental. There you go. There's a user agreement when you log into the game. It's like it's like 10 miles long that nobody reads. It's going to be in there. So if anybody buys this game when it comes out, if they give you full customization, please make a football player to look like me. Because <laughs> I, I don't know how to work the customization options, and I would love to see it. Good. Well, I think we'll leave that one uh, there. That's an exciting story for me to follow, especially like I, I've been waiting for that game for a long time to come back. So oh, yeah. I'm excited for that one. So let's finish up here. There's a bunch of different stories that are kind of out in the ether. And so when that happens, uh, we like to do a what to watch for. Holly, let's start with you. What are you watching for this week? Oh, that's a great question. I think we kind of all talked about the Penny Hardaway Memphis suspension recently. Um, he's got the three-game suspension starting, I think, in November of this year, uh, basically just because he kind of went to two in-house visits with a prospect like two years ago. So I'd love to see – I know that kind of just got announced. Probably nothing will come of it this week, but I'd love to see if that's held up because home visits two years ago, that's kind of a stretch for me. He previously got in trouble for the the James Wiseman stuff, right? So, um, yeah, 
helping we'll out James Wiseman's family. If that goes anywhere, we'll have to have uh, Francis back on to to discuss. Logan, sure. what do you got? I know you guys talked about it last week, but point to the uh, that 12-page memo that IRS came out with with regard to 5013C collectives. Just, I want to put a little deja vu twist on it. You know, back before Christmas time, we saw the NCAA come out with that, hey, we're going to make anybody that potentially violated a rule show that they really didn't violate the rule and that's up to them kind of deal. And so I think that, and then we, a few months later, you see him go down to Miami and actually pull a violation out. And so I think we could see a little deja vu of the IRS comes out with this 12 page memo, even though it's not truly binding, but then you come out and you, you know, we're just waiting to see who the first one is to get the violation. IRS drawing the line in the sand a little bit. There are a lot of different collectives that are doing allowing for tax write-offs. So that's something definitely to keep an eye on, something that we're uh, hyper-vigilant to. Mike, what do you have? Mine is the New York State NIL amendment. Uh, We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's now passed both houses uh, in New York State, and it now just sits on Governor Hochul's desk. So we await. I'm anxious to see if there's any sort of issues here, it, it passed pretty easily in both houses. So I, I think uh, we could see some significant amendment here to name, image, and likeness. And it's it's going to change, I think, a lot of states' opinions on how they, they view name, image, and likeness. So definitely want to see if Governor Hochul signs that re- uh, in the you know near future. Definitely something to keep an eye on for the next session. I've got Rocky Top, Tennessee made it to Omaha this year. I You know, I love college baseball. That's how I I had my first opportunity in baseball working for the Duke baseball team. And so I'm partial to it as a sport. I was hoping that this was the year that they were going to get to Omaha. They had a good run. They had a good run. They did. They, they lost their last couple to UVA. who's also a great team, a great program. So Tennessee did make it to Omaha and they, uh, they battled really hard, I think against LSU and, and fell short, but they, got a team-wide NIL deal. So they signed up everybody who was traveling with the team to an NIL deal. You make a couple posts, you sign some things, and then they auction those off to fans. And there's no better time than when, you know, there's a lot of publicity and buzz around a program, especially Tennessee. They were amazing last year, but fell short in their supers to Notre Dame. They make it to Omaha this year. I'm sure that that has a lot of people fired up in Knoxville. So Really cool concept, really cool idea, especially for college baseball, where there's only 11.7 scholarships, I believe, per team, which is ridiculous, a a very silly NCAA rule that should be changed. So to have them be able to take advantage of this really awesome moment is uh, is great. And we love to see more of this. Holly, do you have a, a, a breaking one? I do. I do have a baby Gronk breaking update. <laughs> so I know we all are big baby Gronk fans here. Maybe not so much of his dad, but he did announce, I think it was either today or yesterday that he officially retires from football. And oh. that was kind of after the backlash from what happened last week, his dad on the podcast kind of coaching him, whatnot. So we will see what happens if he actually is retiring, if he's going to leave social media. We will see. But as of now, he says he officially retires from football. That's my new what to watch this week. All right. Great show. Logan, thanks for joining us. Where can people find you? Twitter and Instagram at Logan C as in Cactus Hughes 23. So Logan C Hughes 23. 
as in Cactus AI. For myself, at TK Sharma Law, at Mike underscore son of underscore law and Holly at Slam Dunk Summers. Thanks again for everyone who listened and we'll see you back in another Conduct Detrimental. 